Well, how many of you grew up with a bully on the block, a bully at your school that you had to deal with? Anybody? Anybody else terrorized? Okay, a lot of us, a lot of us in the first service too. A lot of us terrorized by bullies. Okay, if you were a bully, I want you to rate. No, I'm just kidding. All right, no, we're not going to do that. Some of you are honest. You're like, uh, yeah, I was the bully. That was BC, is before I met Christ, right? Now you know Jesus, and you're not a bully anymore, right? You would never. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. The re- hey, listen, the reason we don't like bullies, the reason why none of us like bullies, because what does a bully do? A, a bully not only terrorizes mostly little kids that are much younger or smaller than them, but one of the reasons I always hated bullies or the big kid on the block, you know, is they would change the rules of the game so that they could win, right? And no one can do anything about it. It's like, okay, we're adding this rule. So, so, but from now on, right? No, 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 no. That's the way the rules have always been, all right? They, they, they add rules, they, they take away rules to benefit themselves. And a lot of times there's, there's nothing you can do about it. And, and so we grow up, we, 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 we hate bullies. We don't like them. We run from bullies, from people who aren't fair, who aren't just. And it's interesting that kind of on the flip side of that, while, while kids will run from those environments, kids actually love environments and they grow, they thrive, they feel safe environments that are just and fair. Let, let me kind of explain to you what I'm talking about. I, I read about 20 different articles this week that talk about where a child feels safe, where they grow, where they thrive. And it's interesting that it's not just all kind of love and encouragement and praise. It, there's, a, there's a whole other side to how kids experience safety. And, it, and it's kind of counterintuitive. So, so listen to this. One article said, structure and routine increases security in children. When kids, <coughs> excuse me, when kids can predict their day-to-day family routine, They develop a sense of security that lacks for children who suffer in chaotic homes. Maintain consistent bedtimes, mealtimes, and rules to maximize your child's feeling of safety. Doesn't that just sound like every kid's dream, right? Maximize consistent bedtimes, mealtimes, and rules, right? Same article said, remind children that you as the parent are in charge and control even the media entering your home. Kids need to know that parents are in control and love them enough to set boundaries. I'm not sure any of our kids are begging for more boundaries, right? But, but article after article after article, and we know this to be true in the scripture, I'm just explaining it to you from more of a secular worldview, says that kids feel safe and they thrive in these kinds of environments where there's control and rules and routine. Another article said, keeping rules and limits is important in helping kids feel safe. Another one said this, consistently hold boundaries. Children test limits repeatedly. When you enforce boundaries, you make them feel secure. It's like double checking a locked door. You know it's locked, but checking again makes you feel safer. Being consistent shows your children that you care for them deeply. Not sure they could ever articulate that, right? But this is just what's true about kids. They grow and they thrive in in these kinds of environments. The same article says you gotta provide balance. Find an appropriate balance between justice and mercy. Isn't that interesting? When children do the wrong thing, correct them by giving a punishment or a consequence. However, children also need to experience mercy. They need to know that all of us mess up, but there's always forgiveness. Here's what almost every one of these articles said, that kids thrive 
They feel safe. They grow in a culture, in an environment where there is routine, rules, boundaries, where there is control being exerted by a just and fair parent. Kids thrive. They feel safe in what the Bible would call a righteous environment. A righteous environment. A righteous environment is a a just environment where wrong is punished. Now, no child would ever communicate that, right? But, But that's where all of history tells us and the scripture tells us the same thing, where kids feel safe and where they grow and thrive and where they can experience trust is in an environment that is righteous. It's just where wrong is punished. And we all do, it's not just kids. In fact, in the Psalms, you're gonna see this today in Psalm chapter seven. In the Psalms, David finds refuge. He finds hope in the righteousness of God and because of the righteousness of God. Most of us see the righteousness of God, the justice of God as something to fear and for good reason for some of us. But today, here's what you're gonna see that the justice and righteousness of God is something to be praised, something to actually worship God for. And it's what actually gives us a safe place in which to grow, thrive, trust, and hope. The righteousness of God you're gonna see today in Psalm chapter seven is your refuge. It is your shield. The righteousness of God is your vindicator. The righteousness of God is your ultimate salvation. We're taking a break from the gospel of Luke. We're walking through the Psalms. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm five. Last week, Psalm six. Today, we're looking at Psalm chapter seven. And we study the scripture here at our church verse by verse because we just believe that knowing the full counsel of God's word develops a deeper sense of trust in God, a, a deeper faith in God, a deeper love for God, a deeper commitment to the mission of Jesus. We preach the word here verse by verse because there's a battle out there. And if you don't know the full counsel of God's word, then you're gonna suffer loss and devastation in the battle. There's a storm out there. And the scripture says you need a firm foundation by which to judge every new wind of teaching that comes along. And the only way you're gonna develop that firm foundation is by knowing the full counsel of God's word. Listen, entertainment and inspiration alone that build audiences is not enough. It's never cut it. It will never cut it. We need deep disciples of Jesus that are filled with the compassion for a lost and broken world, but at the same time are anchored to the conviction of God's word that we find in the scripture. We need deep disciples of Jesus that are prepared for the storm, that are ready for the battle. And, 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 and part of the storm, part of the battle can even look like this. And, and whether you've experienced this or not, your, your, your kids have, the younger generation has, especially as they go to college. But, but the questions out there that many are asking can, can kind of knock you off course. And maybe you've been there before with questions like this. The absence of God, if he's all powerful and good and loving, then then how do you explain God's absence, his lack of response to evil? While others will question the presence of God's wrath coming from his infinite holiness, righteousness, and justice. So some will say, well, if there's a God, we're, we're not too sure he's worthy of our worship 
because he doesn't stop or prevent evil. While others on the other side will say, well, we're not too sure about this God or we're not gonna worship a God who seems so angry and maybe violent and wrathful. And it's interesting that those that ask those questions don't get or understand or grasp that the scripture teaches the answer to each question is found in the other question. Now, some of you, your minds are just like, like you're just blue. Some of you are like, bro, that's way above me. Okay. I have no idea what you just said. Okay. But if you, but, but think about it. Okay. Some question the absence of God's response to evil while others question God's wrath and vengeance and justice being too harsh. And what we're gonna see even in the scripture today is that the answer to each one of those questions is found in the other question. Psalm chapter seven, if you got your Bible, turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, or, or even if you do, we invite you to open our app, go to the message notes portion of our app. If you don't have our app, you can download it in your app store, the City Church Lubbock, and then click message notes and you can follow along the verses and the points, everything is going to be there. Psalm chapter seven, Phil is on our staff, is gonna come and read Psalm chapter seven for us. So as he comes, would you stand in honor of the word of the Lord? And Phil's gonna read for us. Hello folks, I'm Phil. Um, I make all the videos and graphics and things like here at the church. Uh, shockingly, I have a wife, her name is Courtney. She uh, volunteers down in City Kids. And we have a two-year-old son, Weston. Um, he's also in City Kids right now. Um, but yeah, let's read. I come to you for protection, O Lord my God. Save me from my persecutors, rescue me. If you don't, they will maul me like a lion, tearing me to pieces with no one to rescue me. O oh Lord my God, if I have done wrong or am guilty of injustice, if I have betrayed a friend or plundered my enemy without cause, then let my enemies capture me. Let them trample me into the ground and drag my honor in the dust. Arise, O oh Lord, in anger. Stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. Gather the nations before you. Rule over them from on high. The Lord judges the nations. Declare me righteous, O oh Lord, for I am innocent, O Most High in the evil of those who are wicked and defend the, the righteous. For you look deep within the mind and heart, O righteous God. God is my shield, saving those whose hearts are true and right. God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. If a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot his flaming arrows. The wicked conceive evil. They are pregnant with trouble and give birth to lies. They dig a deep pit to trap others, then fall into it themselves. The trouble they make for others backfires on them. The violence they plan falls on their own heads. I will thank the Lord because he is just. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Amen. Thank you, Phil. You can be seated. So look with me in these verses again. We're going to talk about these verses and then we'll kind of make some uh, kind of summarizations here. First of all, in verse one and two, David says he takes refuge in the Lord. He sees God as this fortress in which he can find safety and protection in the middle of attack from his enemies. In verse three through five, although some laments 
like Psalm chapter six that we saw last week, confess sin and understand that the persecution or the suffering that's being endured is as a result of that person's individual sin, like we saw in Psalm chapter six last week. Others, like Psalm seven, we see in verse three through five, deny sin and assert innocence, at least in this instance. David is saying he doesn't deserve the harm that his enemy wants to inflict on him. And so he asked God to examine him. And God said, and David says, if he's guilty, then he deserves it. Like in Psalm six, if he's guilty of sin, then he deserves the discipline of God. He deserves the suffering that he would be enduring. But in Psalm chapter seven, he says he doesn't. He, he doesn't, he's not deserving this, this suffering that his pursuers are, his, his enemies are inflicting on him. So this isn't a claim of absolute righteousness like in his standing before God. We saw in Psalm chapter six, David knows he's not righteous because of the sin that's in his life. No, this isn't an absolute claim of righteousness, but it is a claim to be righteous or innocent in this specific matter that he is bringing to the Lord. In verse six, David says, arise, arise God. It's a metaphor that pictures God being asleep as far as David is concerned, or as far as David is perceiving God based on his action or lack thereof, David is believing God to be unresponsive so far. And the unchallenged evil actions of his enemies are evidence of God's perceived lack of attention. Now notice I'm using the word perceived because at least on David's part, that's what he's perceiving, that God is asleep or he's being inactive. And so the prayer is arise God, begin to move and, and work on my behalf. All of us have been there before. God, where are you? David prays this often in the Psalms. God, where are you? How long are you going to abandon me? Where are you? Arise, wake up. It's this metaphor that shows the position of mankind sometimes when we pray or when we are petitioning God to move and to act. David says, arise, O Lord. Verse eight, David says, judge me, Lord, before this righteous judge, the innocent have no fear. David, in this moment, at least in this matter, says that he's innocent, that he's, he's righteous. And so he can ask God, he can tell God, judge me. You could judge me, God, and I have no fear because at least in this matter, I am righteous. David's righteousness and integrity in this instant leaves no doubt to the appropriate decision from a righteous judge. Even one, David says in verse nine, who searches minds and hearts. God, you see my mind, you see my heart, you know what I'm thinking. You know the attitudes and intentions of my heart. And so you can judge me, you judge everything, not, every, not everything I've ever done, but, but also everything I've ever thought. He says, you search minds and hearts and God, you can see that in this matter, as you judge me, I am innocent, I am righteous. David says this judge can be trusted to bring wickedness to its proper conclusion. And at the same time in verse nine, defend the righteous. And so we see in verse 10 and 11, that in the Psalms, judging is more often than not a saving action. Like we see in verse nine, defending the righteous. God's judgment is the defending of the righteous and the judgment on the oppressor. 
Judging in the Psalms more often than not a saving action, God intervening on behalf of the innocent and the oppressed. This particular deliverance then is a part of God's larger project of putting the world back together again in its right order, the way that he originally intended it to be. In verse 11, we see that God's not a judge who only occasionally and infrequently renders judgment. Rather, David says God is constantly overseeing human affairs and declaring justice every day. Whether we see it or not, God is constantly aware, David says, and is executing judgment every day. And so David believes that his case will not slide by unnoticed, but that God will give it the attention it deserves. In verse 12, David says there's a way out for his persecutors. They can repent and seek the Lord. This verse reminds the people of God to prefer and wish that their oppressors, the wicked, would turn to God rather than suffer punishment. It reminds me of the Lord speaking to Jonah and telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and Nineveh and Jonah's desire that Nineveh would suffer judgment, but the Lord's desire is that they would repent and turn from their sin. As evil and wicked as that city was, God's desire, his heart was for them to repent of their sin and to be saved. Verses 12 and 13, we see these militaristic images of God sharpening the sword, stringing and drawing a bow, preparing to let this arrow fly, flaming arrows at the enemy. This picture is a terrifying description of God as the enemy of the wicked and encourages oppressors to reconsider their opposition to God and their opposition of God's people in light of God's defense of his righteous kids. God is the subject of these verbs runs counter to the prevailing cultural attitudes about conceiving God as this warrior or a judge. Our culture prefers more domesticated metaphors for God or metaphors that are not so troublingly linked to violence. In verse 15 and 16, the wicked are like those who dig a hole but fall into it themselves and experience the violence they had intended for others. It reminds me of what Joseph said about the Lord, what the enemy meant for evil, God by his power and glory will turn around and use ultimately for our good. Never more evident than in the cross. Exactly when the enemy thought he had won, God miraculously used that moment for our good. In verse 17, we see that for the righteous, like David, at least in this matter, the Lord's righteousness and his status as the most high God lead to giving thanks. It leads to worship, to singing praise because God's justice will prevail. So, so here's the big idea in Psalm chapter seven. The righteousness of God is our refuge. The righteousness of God is our refuge. It's our fortress. It's our place of safety. All of the Psalms invite us to understand the divine righteousness of God is a source of confidence. It's a source of comfort rather than fear or dismay that God, the righteous judge is our refuge, at least for the righteous, but for the wicked, the righteousness of God is rightfully something to fear, as we also see in Psalm chapter seven. So 
This righteous God, number one, is a refuge for the sinner. This righteous God, God, the righteous God is a refuge for the sinner. The righteousness of Christ in the gospel is imputed to you because you are not righteous and you cannot do better or work harder your way into the kingdom of God. Jesus said it like this. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you because you stand condemned already before God because you're not righteous. The Bible says you are not righteous. No, not one person is righteous or good. The Bible says this culture will tell us, the world will tell us, no, you're good. You are good enough. You are smart enough and doggone it. People like you, right? I mean, that's what our culture tells us. You're, you're good enough. The scripture says you're not good enough. You're, no, you're not righteous. There is no one good, no, not one. You are not good enough to have a relationship with God and to go to heaven when you die. The big word for that is you are not righteous. I am not righteous. We are unrighteous people. So how do righteous people have a relationship with a righteous God? How do an unrighteous people get to be in fellowship and in relationship with a holy and righteous God? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 explains it like this. He, that is Jesus, became sin for us. He took on your sin and my sin. He who knew no sin, he was perfect and holy. Jesus was righteous. He met every standard of God's law. He performed and met God's standard of righteousness. So he was holy and blameless. He who knew no sin became sin, but he took on our sin on the cross and the wrath of God for your sin and my sin, he took upon himself. Just like when you break man's law, you pay man's fine. When you break God's law, you pay God's fine. And God's fine for sin is eternity separated from him in a place called hell where the wrath of God is poured out on you for your sin for eternity. But the great news is that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for you, to take your sin upon himself through his death on the cross so that those who are in Christ, those who give their lives to Jesus, 521 says, so those of us who are in him would become the righteousness of God. You see, the righteousness of God is something, as I said before, that is imputed to you. It's given to you. You are in a Debt of righteousness. You're not a righteous person. But by your faith in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he takes your sin and Jesus gives you his righteous life. That's imputed righteousness. It's receiving something you did not earn that you did not work for. And so you receive the righteousness of Christ. It's not something you can earn or work for or do better or try harder to receive. It's a status with God that God gives you by his grace through your faith in his son, Jesus. You see, when you place your faith in Jesus, your sin is forgiven. You're made right with God. That's righteous in the eyes of God. Not because of anything you've done, because of what Jesus accomplished for you. And so 521 says, he who knew no sin became sin for you so that those of us who are in Christ would become the righteousness of God. Imputed righteousness is the giving of Christ's righteousness to sinners by God's grace through your faith in Jesus. And so God the righteous 
is the refuge for the sinner who understands they've sinned and fallen short of God's standard, who understands they are not righteous. They're in need of righteousness. And so they cry out to Jesus to save them. Jesus said, I, I didn't come for those who think they're righteous. It's not that they are. It's just that they might think that they are. Jesus said, I, I didn't come for those who think they're righteous. I came for those who know they are sinners, who know they are unrighteous in need of righteousness. That's who I came for. For those who know they're unrighteous and in need of righteousness. And so they cry out to Jesus, the son of God, to be saved, to receive the righteousness of God. The righteous of God is the refuge for the sinner. For the sinner who cries out to Jesus to be saved. And then the righteousness of God is something that's given to you and now becomes a place of safety for you. Did, you. did you hear David? Now, God, you can judge me. And because at least for David in this matter, he's innocent, he's righteous. And so he says, you, God, judge me. You can judge me and everything I've ever thought and everything I've ever done, and you will find me innocent. Listen, the same thing is true for the believer. That's the great news of the gospel is that if you are in the righteousness of Christ because you've given your life to Jesus, then you get to say to God, you look at the day that Christ returns, or you can think about that second after you die and stand before God, and you can have confidence. You can think about that moment without fear because you are holy and righteous in the eyes of God because you're in Christ and Christ is in you, not because of anything you've ever done. That's why John said these things have been written so that you can know for sure that you have eternal life. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to fear. You don't have to doubt. These things have been given to us. The gospel has been given to us so that we can know for sure. How could you know for sure? How could you know for sure? If it's about me and what I've done, I could never know for sure. But if it's about what Jesus has done for me and what he's accomplished for me, then I can be sure because I'm sure about him. I'm in him and he's in me. And so the scripture says, you're now holy and blameless and righteous without a single fault. You are spotless because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And so when the Lord looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so you can look at that day that you stand before God one day. When in verse seven, David says, when all the nations are going to be gathered before him. You see, every last one of you, every last one of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of God one day. And if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, you you've, you've run to the righteousness of God as a sinner for refuge, as for safety. You can look at that day without fear. And like David say, God, you'll judge me and I will be found innocent because of what Christ has done for me. Number two, the righteousness of God is a refuge, is the refuge for the victim. The righteousness of God is the refuge for the victim. I know many of you, probably almost all of you have been hurt by someone in your lifetime. And some of us worse than others. For some of you, maybe it was another Christian. For some of you, maybe it was a group of Christians. For some of you, maybe it was a church that, that hurt you. For some of you, maybe it was a spiritual leader that hurt you. Whatever the hurt or the abuse was, 
that you experienced, God sees it and his heart breaks for that hurt and that abuse that you've experienced because our God, our righteous God is a refuge for the victim. And there's nothing that defames the name of Christ more than when his body corporately abuses and hurts his kids. In fact, the Lord would say about Israel over and over and over again, your actions as a corporate body are defaming my name among the nations. And so God would bring discipline to his kids, even bringing other nations to wipe them out because God would say, you're defaming my name among the nations. And listen, when God's people corporately abuse and hurt people or are silent, when people are being abused or hurt, it defames the name of Christ among the nations. We're seeing it all over again right now as the Southern Baptist Convention is just the most recent in a long line of Christians and churches and denominations to abuse people sexually and then to hide it and to cover it up. It's come out a few years ago, and now the Southern Baptist Convention is finally dealing with this, where nearly three, 400 people have been abused by spiritual leaders in a Baptist church or by even members of the executive committee in the Southern Baptist Convention. And that should anger you. It angers me. Why? Because that defames the name of Christ among the nations. And because people, victims, have been sexually abused at the hands of these so-called spiritual leaders. They're anything but. That should anger you. It angers me as a Christian. It angers me as a spiritual leader that Christ's name is defamed among our nation and the nations because of people and groups like that. Our righteous God, we see in Psalm 7, is a refuge for the victim. One theologian said in a commentary on Psalm chapter seven, that the so-called double wish of the Psalms in which the psalmist prays both for the delivery from enemies and for the destruction of the enemies. That's the double wish in the Psalms. We see it over and over and over again for delivery from enemies and destruction of the enemies. It, it troubles modern sensibilities. We read this and sometimes like Psalm chapter seven and, and, and we read about David talking about this warlike God taking vengeance upon these people. And we're like, man, that doesn't really sit right with us. That's what this theologian saying, but Perhaps we're right to be so troubled since people of faith have so often justified violence by appealing to such biblical passages. But there is another side to this. Western religious tradition has focused so intently on the guilt of sin that we've often been blind to the victims of our sin. That is, we confess our sins and our guilt, but turn a blind eye to the victims of our sin. But sin can never be disconnected from its victims. When we understand this, then the double wish of the Psalms might not only strike us as less troubling, watch this, it might strike us as necessary. After all, when an oppressor has his boot on a victim's neck, is there any way to deliver the sufferer without removing the oppressor? Is there any way to remove the threat posed by the oppressor without removing the oppressor? In Isaiah chapter one, God says to the nation of Israel, stop with all of your sacrifices, stop with all of your music and festivals and work, just stop all of it. 
Stop it. Stop with all your religious routine. Stop. Why? Why is God telling Israel in Isaiah chapter one, stop with all of it. Stop with all your religious routine. Just, just stop it. Just take it out of my sight. God says it's offensive to me. Why is that? Well, in Isaiah chapter one, we learn that God tells his people to stop doing all those things and to start doing some other things first. And he says this in Isaiah chapter one, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans and widows, fight for the rights of those who are oppressed. Even today, many Christians and churches have become way too obsessed with their own rights and freedoms, not giving near enough attention to the rights and freedoms of oppressed people in our country. God, however, make no mistake, is concerned for the oppressed and a genuine faith in Christ and understanding of the righteousness of God will produce empathy and action for victims of oppression. See, we've got to be real careful when we study the Bible. Because of our own self-righteousness, we often see ourselves as David. We see ourselves as Israel or the victim, like in the case of Egypt in Israel. And so we read our Bibles with this kind of self-righteous lens. But what if, what if you, what if we have been the oppressor with our boots on the neck of the victim? I mean, just think about this. <laughs> How many Christians in our country for 200 years were reading their Bibles, not understanding that we were Egypt oppressing and enslaving another people? Christians for 200 years in our country read their Bibles thinking that maybe they were David or maybe they were Israel in the case of Egypt and Israel. When more often than not, Christians in our country for 200 years were not only silent, they were a part of the problem, oppressing and enslaving another people in our own country while reading their Bibles at the exact same time, completely ignorant of the fact that they were the oppressor with their boot on the neck of their victims. Thankful today, at least, that in addition to Father's Day, we get to celebrate Juneteenth. That day in Galveston, Texas, when the last of the slaves were notified that they were emancipated, they were free. God is a refuge, our righteous God is a refuge for the victim. And so as we read the scripture, we should be also reading it, understanding and asking ourselves, is there someone praying this psalm with me as the enemy in mind? Are there victims of my own sins who could cry out to the righteous judge for vindication from their oppressor? We should always be reading the scripture, wondering not only if we're the victim in the story, if we're the hero in the story, maybe we should also be reading the scripture wondering if we're the Egypt in the story, if we're the Goliath in the story.
Because the scriptures say, woe to you if you've got your boot on the neck of a victim. Because God, our righteous God and judge, is a refuge for that victim. And their deliverance could mean your discipline as a child of God or your judgment. And then third, finally, our righteous God is the refuge for the distressed. He's a refuge for the distressed. You could fill in the blank here too with the bro- for the broken, for the impatient, for the tired, for the downtrodden. That's just an old word that talks about people who've been beat down over and over and over again. It could be fill in the blank with the critic, with the doubter, with the jaded. Our righteous God is a refuge for the broken, the tired, the downtrodden, the critic, the doubter, the jaded. You see, this idea of God, our righteous God being a refuge is a wonderful and important gift for all of us who live in the midst of of a broken world, who've looked at things like the Holocaust, or who've looked at things like what's going on in Ukraine right now, or with mass shootings in schools like in Uvalde, and see these events and are broken and are tired of one story and one situation after the next, piling on top of us over and over and over again, bringing nothing but a downtrodden people, a jaded people, a tired, a distressed people, which always in turns produces critics and doubters, anger and bitterness and resentment. But here in Psalm chapter seven and in the scripture, we see that ultimately and eternally, evil is going to be punished. One theologian in his commentary on Psalm seven said this, with Jesus's advent, The time of physical warfare has come to an end for the Christian. That's why Jesus told Peter, hey, put your sword away. Peter's got his sword out. He's ready to go to battle. Jesus is like, nope, that's not how we do battle, Peter. Not anymore, not as disciples of Jesus. Put your sword away. My people are not gonna be marked by violence. They're not gonna be marked by this obsession with winning and victory. No, my people are going to die to themselves. They're gonna take up a cross. They're gonna follow me. We're gonna, we're gonna win by losing. We're gonna be risen by dying. So put your sword away, Peter. Time of physical warfare has come to an end, but, but not the relevance of this prayer for the Christian in Psalm chapter seven. The Christian too is engaged in a battle, but not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Christian now prays Psalm seven with this battle in mind, knowing that Jesus contends on their behalf. The Christian also knows that Jesus will come again for a final battle, And this this Psalm can take on an eschatological dimension. That's talking about the end times when Jesus returns, when, when Jesus comes down from heaven to judge his enemies and to set up his thousand year reign on this earth, which will come before our eternal state on a new earth with new bodies. And so this Psalm can take on an eschatological dimension, meaning that it's a picture, it's a window by which we can view the return of Christ when Jesus makes all things new. So this Psalm can take on this eschatological dimension as his people await his return as a warrior to render final judgment against all human and spiritual enemies. In Revelation chapter 18, 
Babylon is defeated. Babylon is this, throughout the scripture, this city that's a picture of all that is opposed to God. God has his creation, Satan has Babylon, which is a counterfeit to all that is God with counterfeit systems and counterfeit beliefs, counterfeit leaders who worship other gods, who worship power and money and wealth and military might. That's Babylon all throughout the scripture. Everything God has created, Satan has counterfeited. And the the picture, the overarching picture of all that Satan has counterfeited is called Babylon. And in Revelation chapter 18, Babylon is defeated decisively. It's laid waste. All the money, all the power, all the military might, gone in an instant. And and all the leaders and everybody around the world is, is looking at Babylon and weeping and mourning over its fall that everything they put their hope in, everything they put their trust in has come crashing down. This house that was built on sand has come crashing down in Revelation chapter 18. In Revelation chapter 19, we see this image of Jesus returning. And this is blonde haired, baby eyed, you know, blue eyed Jesus, right? In Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus, he's returned on a horse, he's got a sword, His eyes are like fire. He's got tattoos on his thighs. Okay, this is a bad dude, all right? In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus returns and lays waste to the beast that is the devil, his false prophets, those who've led people astray to worship false gods, and all the armies of Satan, which include people who've rebelled against God and who have persecuted God's people. Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19 and lays waste to them. In fact, it's, it's a gruesome picture where vultures, it says, are feeding on the carcasses of those who've rebelled against God. So that's Revelation 18, it's Revelation 19. So all this is happening, the wrath of God is being poured out, just laying waste to God's enemies. But there's something else happening in Revelation chapter 19. While all this is happening, in Revelation 19, everything that's in heaven, and when I say everything, it's not just people, there's people and living creatures and beings. Everything that's in heaven, while this is happening, is worshiping a righteous God who is justly pouring out his wrath on all of evil. Watch this in Revelation chapter 19. John says, after this, he sees all this happen. After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And again, their voices rang out, praise the Lord. The smoke from that city, Babylon, ascends forever and ever. It's kind of a gruesome picture, right? Verse four, then these 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped 
God who was sitting on the throne and they cried out, amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him from the least to the greatest. And then I heard again what sounded like a shout of a vast vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. The righteous of God celebrate and rejoice and worship and give thanks. And their righteousness is depicted in those white linens that they're wearing. It's a picture of the righteousness of Christ that has clothed them. And so these righteous of God, as the wrath of God is being poured out against his enemies, stand firm and secure and safe in the righteousness of God. While at the same time, the righteousness of God is being poured out on the evil and wicked forever. The righteousness of God is a reason for some to be afraid. righteousness of God for the righteous, for those who are in Christ and Christ is in them. It's something to be celebrated. It's our refuge. It's our place of safety. It's our place of vindication. And so if you're in Christ and Christ is in you this morning, you are righteous in the eyes of God. It's who you are now. And the righteousness of God is a place to run. It's a place to hope. And it's from that place that we worship God this morning. Would you pray with me? David said, because of God's justice in verse 17, I will sing praise to the Lord most high. The righteousness of God is your refuge, it's your salvation, it's your hope this morning. But maybe you're here and it seemed like God's been asleep. Maybe you're like David and it's perceived that God is asleep because of his inaction. And maybe your prayer like David has been, arise God, where are you? Arise. In other words, maybe it hasn't seemed like God has been a refuge for you. And so my prayers this morning, for those of you that have felt like that, that this morning you'll read Psalm 7, you'll identify with David and faith will rise up in you as you experience the presence of God, as you experience the refuge that is the righteousness of God this morning. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, then today is your day to give your life to Christ, that you might be forgiven of your sin and made righteous in the eyes of God by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Give your life to Jesus today. And if that's you, jump on our app, fill out our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're committing your life to Christ today. God, we, we come to you in this moment recognizing that your word tells us that your righteousness is a place of refuge for us. And I, I pray that we would find you, we would experience that you would reveal yourself to us as a righteous God in whom we can take refuge. 
God, I'm reminded of Psalm 9, Psalm 46. This says, you are a refuge in times of trouble, not from times of trouble, but you are a refuge in times of trouble. And so we just proclaim that and believe that this morning, God, that you are a place of refuge in our times of trouble. And so God, I pray that every last person here would sense that and believe that this morning, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give them the faith to see you arising as a place of refuge in their own life. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Would you stand as our team leads us in time of worship?